we've, uh, we've arrived at the uh, third section in our study on First Thessalonians and um, today I think the subject was entitled Caring for the Team and uh, remember that overarching theme we've spoken about for this year, How Then Shall We Live? And uh, this particular chapter uh, has a lot to say about how we ought to live in community and I'm just, uh, I was really encouraged as I spent the time reading it and thinking about it and listening to what others said about it and reading other commentaries on it and so on. So it's been helpful to me this week. Um, there are various ways that we could approach this chapter and they would probably all be legitimate. We could speak today about the persecuted church. That We've heard a bit about that um, today and what's been happening in the Middle Eastern area and it wouldn't be unreasonable to talk about this as the, the persecuted church today because there's plenty of example that Paul uses as to what happened to him and, uh, and to these Thessalonian Christians as well. Um, we could talk about it from the perspective of the, the benefits of the Gospel. When, when the Gospel comes it brings great change to people and we only have to look down through history to see that wherever the gospel has been preached, lives have been changed, communities have been transformed, nations have been changed, the world has been changed. So it would be legitimate for me to take that approach today. Um, but I want to take the soft and gooey approach and that's probably you look and you think, well, that's really not you, of course, but... Um, you know, Paul had a very soft and gooey approach to how he was dealing with this group of people because he loved them. And it's that approach that I want to talk about today and I want us to think about how that might impact on our relationships with one another and uh, how we might live that out throughout the life of the church here. From the passage we see that Paul gives a very clear and persuasive explanation about his activities uh, so nobody could be in doubt what Paul had been doing and they couldn't be in doubt about how he cared about this group of people. Uh, it starts in verse 17 there of chapter 2 with the word but and, uh, and, and contrasts Paul's experiences with those of the Thessalonians. His love for them and the depth of his feelings towards them though, comes out very quickly as you read through the passage. Now the experts in the commentaries tell me that um, that term in verse 17 that says torn away is really a term, it's only used in this one part in the, uh, in the, in the New Testament and it means to be orphaned and uh, that's how Paul felt about his relationship with this group of people that he'd been separated from them and had brought great pain and anguish to him. Uh, this was happening due to circumstances that were out of Paul's control. He was separated from them, uh, but you know, out of sight was certainly not out of mind and, uh, and he made that very clear in the way that he spoke to them. Verse 18 suggests clearly to us that he struggled with what was happening, the fact that he was hindered from returning to them and he blamed Satan uh, for that but whatever the reasons, whatever the circumstances that stopped him from coming, one thing's for sure, God ultimately permitted those things to happen. So we have to always keep that in mind when things happen in life. 
we need to be aware of who we might think is responsible but ultimately God permits things to happen and this was the case for Paul. Paul even inserted his own name there in verse, six, uh, verse 18. He says, I, Paul, and that's, that is unusual. That's, he, he's already writing the letter and he's three chapters in and he says, I, Paul, what, for what purpose? For no other purpose than to emphasise the fact that this was him. This, this wasn't a group of other people. This wasn't the fact that others might have been um, taking down the dictation that Paul was giving. He was, he was driving home the fact to this group of people that he himself was really deeply affected by what was happening to them and that's why he wrote in that way. Paul affirms, uh, Paul's affection for them overflows and, and it certainly show, uh, this show of affection would have done much to have encouraged this group of people that were struggling. And I want to think about his love for them in three ways today. Paul was concerned for them, why? One, because he loved them. Two, because he missed them. And three, because he recognised that part of his reward in a coming day was going to come from this group of people. So he had a vested interest in caring for them. Now Stuart Colton is a speaker from Sydney um, and uh, when he was speaking about this passage he quoted from Julian Lennon and uh, I found it helpful so it made me go to Wikipedia, Raf, and uh, look up what Julian Lennon had to say about his father and I've written it down. I'd like to read it to you. Here it is. In 1998 interview with the London Telegraph, Julian Lennon, son of the Beatle John Lennon, had this to say. He was talking about his father. He said, I would have to say that he, that is John Lennon, was a hypocrite. Dad could talk about peace and love uh, out loud to the world but he could not show it to the people who were supposed to mean the most to him his wife and his son. How can you talk about peace and love and have family in bits and pieces? No communication, adultery, divorce. You can't do it. Not if you're really being true and honest with yourself. Colton went on to say, I think that those words of Julian Lennon highlight what is a common problem for us. It is easier, always easier, to love the world in theory than it is that particular bit of the world that's sitting across you on the train and taking up too much legroom. Or it could equally be said about the person in front of you at the bank queue or the supermarket queue taking far longer than you think is acceptable. This same kind of attitude I think can be true of how we view the church. We love the church in theory. Stuart, it's just the people we don't find so easy to get on with. Uh, We love the church but we don't always get along with the people who come on a Sunday morning. Individual relationships, one-on-one, with the wider group of people we find ourselves worshipping with are sometimes much harder to maintain than it is to just love in general terms. Now I want to consider how Paul really did love this group of people 
and my hope today is that we might be encouraged to do life much deeper, much more genuine, much more sincerely as we journey together in this group church that God has placed us in in 2015 as we do our studies in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And this particular chapter today just happens to come along at this time in our time in history. But I hope, and it's been my prayer this week, that as we think about how Paul loved this group of people, we too might love one another and that we might desire to do life more deeply, more genuinely together. In chapter 1 and 2, Paul has been showing his pastoral leadership to the group. In chapter 3, we get a glimpse of Paul's heart for this small group of people in Thessalonica. He's not generalising here. He, he is zeroed in on just a small group of people at a certain time in history. They are real people. It was a real town. It was a real church that had been established. And it could just equally have been a group like us today being gathered together in Jesus' name. And he loved them. He was concerned for them. When David gave us the overview on Acts 17, from Acts 17 on this subject a few weeks ago, we learned how that this church, came, how it came into being. Paul and Silas and Timothy had preached the gospel and people had believed. We also learnt that not everybody liked the message and that there was persecution that followed when the message had been delivered and there was a riot and eventually they had to leave the city. The message had caused great division in that city and uh, remember they were only there a few weeks or as I think Josh or somebody reminded us at best a few months. We don't exactly know. Because Paul, Silas and Timothy were forced out after such a short time, it's easy to understand why Paul would have been worried about how these new converts were going to survive. That's a fair and reasonable thing to assume. He only was there for such a short period. Persecution is tough enough to handle when you are mature in your faith. But if you are uh, only a few weeks old or at best a, a few months old in your Christian faith, I can't quite understand or imagine how they coped so well with that because they didn't have the grounding and the history and so on. It would not have been of any surprise had Paul found that in actual fact the church had folded and they'd been dispersed and, uh, and they didn't function anymore. But 2 verse 14 reminds us that it was their own countrymen that was bringing this persecution to them and so because of that Paul decides to send Timothy to find out how they're going and in chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2 we read this so when we could stand it no longer we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens we sent Timothy who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith verse 4 says you know quite well uh, you were destined for persecution. In fact, when we were with you and we kept telling you you would be persecuted and it turned out as you know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent Timothy to find out about your faith. Paul says, I was worried. Um, 
and that you might have been unsettled by the suffering. They'd seen Paul and Silas and Timothy suffer and they were suffering. And in verse 4 he reminds them that the believers are destined to suffer. Timothy was sent to help them to stand firm in that persecution. And so it wouldn't have been unreasonable today to have done a message based on how the church stands up under suffering. That would have been quite legitimate. But that wasn't what Paul's primary focus to me was. In verse 5, Paul lays bare his heart and he says he was concerned. He was concerned for them and that's why he sent Timothy to find out if the tempter had discouraged them and rendered their efforts useless. But the tone changes in verse 6. Have a look at that. Verse 6 says this. Um, but Timothy has just now come to us from you and he has brought a good news about your faith and your love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Verse 6, he's told us, what did Paul tell them? That they were... that. They long to see Paul just as much as Paul and the team long to see them. And you know the interesting thing, surprise, surprise, without Paul and Silas and Timothy, the church survived. Isn't that amazing? Is that a surprise? See, God's work, if it's done in God's way, always survives. And so maybe Paul's anxiousness was unnecessary because, the, because this group of people had persevered but God was in control. Good reminder, you know, don't ever think that you're indispensable because God always has people that can do his work and if we don't do it, he has others that can and if perchance by persecution or whatever reason we're removed from a situation God's never taken off chance it's never plan B he always knows what's going to take place how many times down through history have churches been persecuted and groups been dispersed and missionaries have had to leave and yet the church survives and the church grows and the church thrives because it's God's work. It's not the work of any one individual. Now this section of Thessalonians is a very deep personal section to Paul and as I was reading it, it made me think of one of my favourite passages. I really do enjoy Timothy chapter 2 and... uh, in chapter 4 we read the personal remarks of Paul and I've found these to be a great encouragement and I know you'll know them well but I just want to touch on them because it seems to drive home a bit of the heart of the man. He says in verse 9, Do your best to come quickly, Demas, because he has loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia and Titus to Domania. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. 
if you know the history of Mark, as most of you do, what a great encouragement at the end of Paul's life he needed that guy. He didn't need him in the early part so much. He wasn't that bothered when he, when he turned his back on them and didn't stay in the heat of the battle with him. When we read about their ex- exploits in the book of Acts, but when you come over to the end of Paul's life and he's in a prison, he says, don't forget to bring Mark. It tells you a lot about how Paul valued people. I want you to keep that in mind as we think of the rest of our chapter in Thessalonians. He says, uh, I sent Tychius to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. And it's been said many times, isn't it, that uh, if you got to write down what you would put as inspired words in the Holy Scriptures, you may not have bothered to bother writing about a cloak, a coat. But Paul was cold in prison and he wanted that coat and God allowed him to ask for it because God is interested in all those very small details of life. And, uh, and as Paul got involved in the life of these Thessalonian people, he was interested in what was happening to them. And so we have this section in 2 Timothy which is a very personal section about uh, how Paul was feeling and, and the way that uh, he expressed his feelings. And in 1 Thessalonians 3, I couldn't help but feel that this has the same heartbeat about it, the way that Paul is relating to these people. It has the same depth of feeling that that section in Timothy has. Paul is laying bare his heart here. He's expressing his feelings to them and we seldom talk about our feelings. We all have them but we don't talk about them. And if we do talk about them, sadly, most people don't want to listen. That's the reality. That's the world that we live in. But that is not the world that... that, that it's not the Christian world that Paul would want the Thessalonian people to be living in and it's not the world in which we, in 2015, ought to live in in a church like this one here in Montmorency. That we are too scared to talk about our feelings, too scared to open up a little of our emotion and our heartbeat and our journey. But God is interested in our feelings. Even if it makes us uncomfortable to talk about them, God is interested. And there are plenty of examples in Scripture of how Jesus expressed his feelings, his time on the cross, his time in the garden, his time at Lazarus' tomb, when Mary was at his feet, He expressed great emotion and feeling and if the Master can do it, why can't we? But we we are too guarded, too careful, too afraid that we might get hurt. Paul had these feelings for this group of people. Why? He had these feelings because he loved them. In chapter 2 he says that we were like a mother in verse 7 among you and, uh, and again in verse 11 he says we were like a father among you. Chapter 2 and verse 8 he says they were so dear to him and in the passage today he speaks about being torn away. Um, chapter 2 verse 17 he speaks of intense longings. Chapter 2 verse 19 he says you are our hope, our joy and our crown in which we will glory. 
And then when we go over to chapter 3, verse 1, when we could stand it no longer. And then he personalises it in verse 5, when I could stand it no longer, we sent Timothy. He speaks of the joy that we have because of you. And look at how Paul addresses them. Intense longing, torn away, joy, hope, crown, stand it no longer. This is the language of a person. Torn apart with the thought of being separated from the people that he loves. Now, Rach and Andy and Josh are going to go to New Zealand in a few months. Only a few weeks, as a matter of fact. And I'm not quite so sure how we're going to feel once they're gone. Now, we'll go and visit them uh, and I'm sure it will be heart-rending when we have to leave them and when we have to come back home. But we have another daughter and she lives here in Melbourne and so we'll look forward to coming back and seeing her. But it won't change the, the feeling of being torn from having some in this area of the world and some in that area of the world and not being able to be with them as we are almost every day now. And this is how Paul felt about this group of people. He knew them only for a short time. We said only a couple of weeks or maybe a few months. And in Acts 17 it suggested that they'd been there only three Sabbath days, so maybe only three weeks. We don't really know. And Josh, when he was speaking two weeks ago, he told us a bit about these people in Thessalonica. They weren't perfect by any means. They were, it was a port city, he reminded us, and they were idol worshippers. Chapter 1 verse 9 tells us that some of them were idol worshippers bowing down to idols. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 4 suggests that some of them were sexually immoral, given over to the satisfaction of their lusts. Yet despite all of this, Paul loves them. There is joy. Despite the fact that they had problems and I'm sure that some of those problems would have hung over into their new relationships. Is this how you feel about the people at Monty? This is your church. We are all brothers and sisters together. Do you miss me when you go away? Do you miss the church when you go away? Or is it frankly a nice break? Would you use Paul's language to describe how you feel about the church and its people? Are we your joy? Do you have a longing to get back here when you've away from us? Do you see each other as Paul saw the church in Thessalonica? He said they were his joy, his crown and he had an intense longing to be with them. Is this how you feel today? About the people in the next row, Betty? You're not quite sure who they are, are you? <laughs> Is this how we feel about the, the people around us? Have a look around the church. This is how Paul felt about the church 
that he loved and the church that he had invested in and that he found himself in. Is this how we feel about each other? Being honest, we'd have to say that it's not always easy to do that. It's hard work. And it's not easy. It doesn't get easier either. I've discovered people are not always lovely, Brett. I always lovely myself. We have feet of clay. We're not always what we ought to be. But I want to tell you that we're the best that you're going to get because this is the group that God has placed you with. So unless you decide to leave and go somewhere else, you better start working on those relationships because this is the group of people that God has ordained that we ought to be with. We ought to worship with and it ought to impact on how we relate to each other. Human nature being what it is, people grumble and complain, they disappoint us, they act sinfully and yet we're called to love them. There are lots of ways that people can disappoint us. Chapter 2 verse 17, Paul says, Brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Why? Because he missed them. He missed them. He'd only been with them for three weeks or so, but he missed them. He wanted to be back with them. He says, what is our hope in chapter 2 verse 19? He says, it is you. Indeed, you are our glory, our joy. In other words, Paul is saying when Jesus returns, what will be his glory and what will he boast? It won't be all of his missionary journeys. It won't be his prestige. It won't be the fact that he's the great apostle Paul. No. What will be there when Paul at the last day, uh, what will be there with Paul at the last day? the people of God. That's what's real. That's what's of great value and the people Paul is invested in is what will last. He expressed similar feelings when he writes to the church at Philippi. This is why Thessalonians matters to, the Thessalonians matter to Paul and that's why the people that God has placed you with here at Montmorency should matter to you. What you do, uh, what uh, do you do uh, to be remembered? At the, uh, what do you really want to remember at the end of your life and be remembered for? How much money you've got, Josh? How good your business dealings were? No, I don't think so. What will be important is whether you're consistently invested into the life of other people. What a privilege it is to be free to meet with this select group of people God alone has called together here in his church at Montmorency in 2015. You can have all of the plans and the programs, all the money and the ministries, but unless, you have, unless you've been ministering into lives of people, you've got your ladder leaning up against the wrong wall. It's not going to mean much at the end of the day.
What you do for people over a cup of coffee, the person you help, expecting nothing in return, these are the things that really matter. The people that you've taken an interest in, the people that you care about, the people that you've bothered to speak to. You never know the word of encouragement as you go out of the church and you speak to someone different today than you would normally speak to on a Sunday. You bother to go out of your way to find the person and there are people who are obviously standing on their own. Nobody's talking to them. It's about time we recognise that we are all part of a family and we all need to invest and work at being involved in the lives of other people. You matter to each other and to the well-being of this group of people God has called together, it will be enhanced if we take an interest in each other. When you stand in the presence of Jesus on the last day, will some of your joy come from the investing that you've done in the lives of people in this church? Some have been here a long time and they can reflect back and see the journey that people have made under their leadership and their guidance and that's a great thing. And some are just starting on the journey and new generations of people will come and go. The Christian journey of life is not without its challenges. It's it's not always convenient to love, as Paul suggests here, and to invest in other people. Most of what we do is just mundane coming early to practice for the music, getting the communion table ready, preparing for Sunday school, sorting out what's going to happen at playgroup this week. They're just mundane things. But that's the world that we live in and yet they can be godly things if they're done with the right heart and the right attitude. These things can all rob us of our joy and take our eyes off of the big picture if we're not careful but we all do have feet of clay. You know, perfection is a characteristic of God and we don't find it in each other, but we should, not, we should be encouraged when we at least see improvement. Don't look for perfection because you're not going to find it. But when people seem to have journeyed a little further and become a little mature in their faith, be encouraged. God's at work. You know, people do disappoint us because we are human and it's easy to be discouraged by that. In chapter 2 and verse 17 through to chapter 3 and verse 8, Paul is describing his great love and affection uh, for this group of people. They're his joy, his crown and his hope. He knows his reward comes from them. So in verse 9 to 13 he prays for them and we're heading towards the end on our times nearly gone. Verse 9 he says, How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we have in the presence of God because of you? Um, Look at what he says about them. He says, We rejoice in you. How can we thank God enough for you? We pray for you. We pray that you will preserve. We pray that you'll be holy and blameless. You are our crown, you are our glory and we pray that you might, that your love might increase and overflow. Paul speaks of prayer in all of his letters in chapter 1. He says that we are always thankful to God for you, mentioning you in our prayer. In chapter 3 he details his prayer. It's a mixture of praise and thankfulness, petition and intercession. Thankfulness in verse 9, how can we thank God enough for you? 
Have you got to the point where you can say, I can't thank God enough for Sam. He says, I can't thank God enough for you. Can we say that of one another? I I can't thank God enough that he's let me be part of this church. What a wonderful thing. But that's how Paul felt about this group of people. Thankfulness. I can't thank you enough for David and Bev. I can't thank you enough for Raph. I can't thank you enough for Damo. Is that how we feel about each other? We need to have a thankful heart and if, it's, if you don't have a thankful heart, ask God to help you. Verse 10 and 11, he prays for opportunity to visit them and to supply what is lacking in their faith. He hasn't had enough of them. He still wants to be with them. Verse 11, he asks God to clear the way so that he can come to them. Ask God to clear the deck a little bit of the things that hold you back from reaching out to the other people who are part of the fellowship here. Your busyness and your work and all of those other things and ask God to give you an opportunity to find how you might be able to invest into their lives. In verse 12 he prays for increased love for one another so that their love is like a flood, like a river in flood, breaking its banks, overflowing. Verse 13, this is so that they will have strength to be holy and blameless and to wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we pray for one another like that, we can pray that we will all stay in the race and have strength for the day. This is uh, some prayer life. Paul's focused on what matters, the big things. We get so preoccupied with the small and insignificant things that we pray about or so introverted in our prayers for ourselves and not recognise the need of prayer for others and prayer for our church. Prayer is the work and sadly it's neglected by most Christians and you often hear people pull out comments about how often people pray in the church at large in general and it's always a very, very small percentage of people who even bother to pray today. And if it's true in the evangelical church that people don't bother to pray, let me ask you, how true is it in our church? Do you bother to pray? Do you pray for one another? Do you pray for the well-being of each other, for the spiritual blessing in the lives of each other, for the children of each other? Do we have that level of interest? Time's gone. Paul's three things about Paul. He loved them, he missed them and he recognised that part of his reward in a coming day would come from them. How about you and I? What is our attitude toward each other? This is the church, no other church today. This is the group of people that God has called us to journey with. For some of us, it's 20, 30, 50, 70, maybe 80 years, I'm not sure, but it's a long, long time people have been on the journey in this church. For others of you, you are new to the church. There are wonderful people in this church. There are people of God in this church. There are people with hearts like Paul in this church.
take time to find out about the people that you come and worship with day by day. We all know that we've got our faults and our failures. We've all got them. Look beyond those faults and failures and look to what God has done in our lives that we might indeed be the people of God.